Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stephen Eagle. I teach at George Mason University School of Law across the river in Arlington, Virginia. And I'd like to welcome each of you to our Federalist Society program on enforcement of the Clean Water Act. This is one of a series of programs that the Federalist Society holds to educate the public, legislators, and staff about important issues of the day. This program is being recorded and will be available on the Federalist Society website, and many individuals have been downloading and listening to these programs, so I'm pleased that we have that extended audience as well as those who are here in person this afternoon. Historically, Congress's power to regulate water has been premised on the Commerce Clause and the importance of waterways in interstate commerce. Thus, there has been little question that dredging and filling navigable water bodies and their tributaries are appropriate subjects for federal regulation. However, the difficulty in determining precisely where waters end and land begins led to the United States Supreme Court in 1985 in, Rivers, in United States versus Riverside Baby Homes to agree with the Army Corps of Engineers that it was reasonable to interpret the term waters to encompass wetlands adjacent to waters as more conventionally defined. At the same time, environmentalists, heeding the environmental pioneer John Muir's famous dictum that when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Based on this, they argued that comprehensive water quality regulation was required and argued for extensions of waters that could be regulated under the Clean Water Act. After much litigation in the federal courts, in a, 19, in a 2006 plurality decision in Rapanos versus United States, the Supreme Court limited the scope of the Clean Water Act's protection of navigable waters to include only those bodies of water that are permanent, standing, or continuously flowing, and thus did not apply to channels through which water flows only some of the time. In the wake of the Rapanos decision, Representative James Oberstar of Minnesota has sponsored the Clean Water Restoration Act of 2007 that would permit the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to enforce the Clean Water Act on wetlands, streams, and ponds that are not a part of the traditional navigable waterways and their tributaries. We have with us today a distinguished panel that will discuss the constitutional and practical issues regarding comprehensive water regulation under the Oberstar proposal. In the order in which they will be speaking, our panelists are Robert Percival, who is the Robert F. Stanton Professor of Law and Director of the Environmental Law Program at the University of Maryland. He served on the Board of Directors of the Environmental Law Institute and is the contributing editor of, for Environment and Natural Resources for the Federal Circuit Bar Journal. 
He is the principal author of the widely used casebook, Environmental Regulation, Law, Science, and Policy, and has lectured extensively on environmental law topics in the United States and abroad. Professor Percival received his B.A. from McAllister College and his M.A. and J.D. degrees from Stanford University. He clerked for Judge Shirley M. Hofstetter of the Ninth Circuit and for Supreme Court Justice Byron R. White. In addition to other achievements that I don't have time to mention now, he also coaches his law school's championship softball team. <laughs> John H. Adler, who will speak second, is Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where he teaches courses in environmental, regulatory, and constitutional law. Professor Adler is the author or editor of three books on environmental policy, and his articles have appeared in numerous scholarly and popular publications. He also appears on radio and TV and covers environmental and legal topics for National Review Online. He's also a regular contributor to the legal blog, The Volokh Conspiracy. In 2004, Professor Adler was awarded the Federalist Society's annual Paul M. Bader Award, given to an academic under 40 for excellence in teaching, scholarship, and commitment to students. Prior to joining the Case Western faculty, Professor Adler clerked for Judge David Santel and the D.C. Court of Appeal, on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and from 1991 to 2000, he worked at the Competitive Enterprise Institute here in Washington, where he directed the Environmental Studies Program. Professor Adler holds a B.A., magna cum laude, from Yale University, and a J.D., summa cum laude, from the George Mason University School of Law. One of an academic's greatest pleasures is to savor the accomplishments of a former student, so I'm especially pleased to welcome Jonathan here. Patrick A. Parento is professor of law and director of the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Clinic at Vermont Law School, where he previously was director of the Environmental Law Center. He also teaches in the Environmental Studies Program at Dartmouth College. Professor Parenta's previous posts include Vice President for Conservation with the National Wildlife Federation, General Counsel to the New England Regional Office of the EPA, Commissioner of the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation, and he has been of counsel with the Perkins Cole Law Firm in Portland, Oregon. He is the recipient of the National Wildlife Federation's Conservation Achievement Award, for 2005 in recognition of his contributions to wildlife conservation and environmental education. Professor Parento holds a B.S. from Regis University, a J.D. from Creighton University, and an L.L.M. in environmental law from George Washington University. M. Reed Hopper oversees the Pacific Legal Foundation's Endangered Species and Clean Water Act litigation. Prior to joining the Pacific uh, Legal Foundation in 1987, he served as both an environmental protection officer and hearing officer in the U.S. Coast Guard enforcing the Clean Water Act in the, uh, in the Gulf Coast. He has managed large environmental compliance programs and written numerous environmental standards. He has litigated precedent-setting environmental and land-use cases, including the recent Rapanos case 
in the U.S. Supreme Court, of which I'm sure we'll hear more this afternoon. Each panelist is going to make a short presentation, followed by a limited opportunity for rebuttal and uh, uh, conversation among the panel. And then we come to one of the most important parts of the program, which is an opportunity for you to ask questions of our panel. So we'll start then with Professor Percival. Do you want to come up there? Thanks, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here. The, the timing of this was perfect because it gave me a, an excuse to skip a faculty meeting this afternoon. I actually live just a, a few blocks a, away from here, and uh, every time I speak to the Federal Society, I do have to note that as a resident of the District of Columbia, I think the, the absolute number one most important federalism issue is the fact that I don't have any voting representation in Congress. I've lived here for 28 years, and I would hope that uh, the Federal Society would focus a little more on that. It's nice to see some action finally in Congress on that. It shouldn't be a partisan issue because if you look at history, uh, President Bush's grandfather, Prescott, a Republican senator from Connecticut, was a great champion of D.C. voting rights and, in fact, along with Republican President Eisenhower, helped get the 23rd Amendment through Congress so we at least have voting representation for president. Uh, it would be nice if uh, the bill that currently has the brilliant political compromise with giving Utah the extra seat gets voted on suit in the Senate. I always have to say that when I'm speaking to the Federal Society because it's near and dear to my heart. We have a baseball team now, which is great. Now just give us voting rights. The topic of, of today's uh, discussion is also very important because we have a situation now that is really intolerable no matter what side of the political fence you sit on. Due to the Supreme Court's decision in the Rapanos case last year, uh, the law is completely confused with respect to the scope of federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. Uh, I testified before Congressman Oberstar's committee on July 17th, and my remarks are sort of a condensed version of that. If you want to see that testimony in more detail, it's online at the committee's website. Basically, I'd like to make four points. First, Congress properly recognized in 1972 when it passed the original version of the Clean Water Act that a comprehensive approach would be necessary to protect the nation's waters. Thus, it intended to exercise the fullest extent of its constitutional powers when it adopted legislation requiring permits for all discharges of pollutants or dredged or filled material that would degrade the nation's waters. Second, the courts properly recognized that Congress had acted wisely when it entrusted the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency with responsibility for implementing this program. Thus, in its 1985 Riverside Bayview decision, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously deferred to these agencies in upholding their broad application of the act to wetlands contiguous to open waters. Third, as a result of two sharply decided Supreme Court decisions, not just the Rapanos decision in 2006, but also the Swank decision in 2001, Everyone agrees that confusion now reigns over the scope of federal jurisdiction to protect the nation's water. This confusion benefits no one and can only be dispelled by the adoption of new legislation clarifying the scope of the act. Fourth and finally, Congress has ample constitutional authority to restore the act to its initial premises. First, 
Congress intended to provide comprehensive protection for the nation's waters. The Clean Water Act was enacted in 1972 to create a comprehensive federal regulatory program to ensure that the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters would be protected. Congress realized it was doing something quite expansive when it adopted that act because it thought it was necessary. And in fact, the Supreme Court recognized that early on in 1981 when, in the case of uh, Milwaukee versus Illinois, the Supreme Court held that the Clean Water Act was so comprehensive that the federal common law of interstate nuisance had been preempted by this. This is quoting Justice Rehnquist's majority opinion in that case. In view of the breadth of federal regulatory authority contemplated by the act itself and the inherent difficulties of defining precise bounds to regulable waters, oh, excuse me, I'm quoting from Riverside Bayview. Here's, here's what Justice Rehnquist had to say in 1981. Uh, Justice Rehnquist said that the problem of controlling water pollution is difficult and technical, doubtless the reason Congress vested authority to administer the act and administrative agencies processing the necessary expertise. He opined that courts were particularly unsuited to resolving through sporadic and ad hoc application of federal common law disputes over the extent of federal regulation. Thus, even the justice most clearly associated with championing state sovereignty and constitutional limits on federal authority, acknowledged the comprehensive scope of the Clean Water Act and the wisdom of deferring to expert judgments of the agencies charged with implementing it. Then, in 1985, we get the Riverside Bayview case, where the court was asked to decide whether the act applied to a wetland that was not itself a navigable water in the sense of being navigable in fact, but was adjacent to navigable waters. And there the court unanimously, in a decision by my old boss, Justice White, said that we should defer to the court's judgment because of the breadth and comprehensiveness of the Clean Water Act. And that's when he wrote, in view of the breadth of federal regulatory authority contemplated by the act itself and the inherent difficulties of defining precise bounds to regulable waters, the Corps' ecological judgment about the relationship between waters and their adjacent wetlands provides an adequate basis for a legal judgment that adjacent wetlands may be defined as waters under the Act. Now, that decision is still good law in the sense that the four justices and the plurality in Rapanos did not purport to overturn it. They did, however, try to confine it to its facts, without challenging, though, the underlying reasoning of the Act, which I su suggest supports a broader interpretation of the Act. Now, what's happened as a result of the Rapanos decision? Confusion reigns. That confusion was illustrated by Professor Eagle's introduction, where in giving the holding in Rapanos, he quoted Justice Scalia's plurality opinion. However, the court split 4-1-4 in Rapanos, the four dissenting justices led by Justice Stevens explicitly rejected the notion that the act only applied to contiguous standing or flowing bodies of water. Justice Kennedy, who agreed with neither the four dissenters nor the four in the plurality, expressly rejected that. So we have five of the justices of the court rejecting Justice Scalia's radical new restrictive interpretation of the Clean Water Act. Justice Kennedy, in his concurring opinion in the judgment, basically said that the court should, on a case-by-case -case basis, 
determine whether there's a significant nexus between the waters, the wetlands it seeks to regulate, and the navigable waters downstream. That approach was rejected by the other justices, and yet it is, in fact, the law that has to be applied today because it's an approach that is closest to what would be determinative in another case that came up because the four justices in the dissent said they basically would defer to the court's judgment. So the result is that you have a situation where the law of the land, and it's law that no one knows exactly how to apply Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test because he just made it up himself, is that represents the views of a single justice that were rejected by all other eight members of the Supreme Court. And I submit that that is causing confusion that is simply intolerable because no one knows what the true scope of federal jurisdiction is. So it would certainly be appropriate in those circumstances for the Congress to step in and clarify the law. It's also interesting to note that when the Swank decision came down initially in 2001, the EPA and the Corps had actually proposed adopting new regulations, but 41 of the 43 states who responded to the agency's request for comments opposed any significant narrowing of the court's jurisdiction, as did roughly 99% of the 133,000 other comments that were submitted, which convinced the White House to withdraw that proposal and not to redefine the waters of the United States in response to the Swank decision. I submit that this actually should not be a partisan issue because the Bush administration fully defended the Corps and EPA in the Rapanos case, and they were joined by most of the states who filed amicus briefs, came in on their side, arguing, in fact, that as a matter of federalism, it was important to have strong federal regulatory authority in order for them to be able to deal with the transboundary pollution that could otherwise be caused by wetlands being destroyed in upstream states. Now, the only way to clarify this would be to adopt legislation. The Oberstar Bill effectively would adopt what Justice Breyer suggested in his separate dissent in the Rapanos case, simply stating that it's the intent of Congress in the Clean Water Act to extend federal jurisdiction to its constitutional limit. That does not mean that there's no limit to federal jurisdiction. It still would have to be demonstrated that the waters that were going to be regulated would have a significant impact on interstate commerce in order for them to be able to be regulated under the Commerce Clause, or in light of the Supreme Court's decision in the Reich v. Gonzalez case, it would have to be demonstrated that it's necessary to regulate those wetlands in order to avoid undermining a larger federal regulatory program. I submit there's no question that Congress has the constitutional authority to extend federal jurisdiction to the limit of its constitutional authority. That's essentially a tautology. That, I think, would be the easiest solution in these circumstances. Otherwise, you'd have a situation where even if destruction of a wetland would have a significant effect on interstate commerce and cause substantial environmental damage, it would not be regulated under the Act. So that's why I think that Congress is doing the right thing by considering this legislation to clear up this confusion. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. The case just argued will be submitted for decision.
we have Professor John Archer. Thank you, Steve. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Um, like Bob, I'm getting to miss a faculty meeting today as well. Um, so just for all of you, uh, if you're looking to invite law professors to events in the future, find out when their faculty meetings are. You'll have a much easier time getting them to come. Um, and uh, I should also just say that uh, when I was a, a D.C. resident and I used to see the, the they started coming out with the license plates that said no taxation without representation, I was just hoping they were going to get rid of my taxes. Um, but that didn't happen either. Now, Bob and I would certainly agree, and in fact, I think probably all of us on the panel will agree that certainty uh, in the law is a very good thing and that we would like to see cer greater certainty in terms of what is covered under the Clean Water Act, what activities and what lands and what waters are subject to federal regulation and what ones are not. Uh, this is not only important for the regulated community that needs to know what things it needs to ask the federal government for permission for, uh, but it's also important for non-federal actors that are involved in environmental protection. Uh, states need to know where federal authority ends and state authority begins. Uh, Non-governmental conservation organizations need to know where to devote their resources uh, so they can complement the efforts of the federal government in terms of protecting, and, and protecting the environment. Uh, but the problem is, is that the confusion in this area didn't begin with Rapanos. And enacting legislation such as uh, the Overstar, Overstar legislation has been proposed uh, won't do anything to end the confusion about the scope of federal regulation over waters and wetlands. Uh, ever since the Clean Water Act was first adopted, there was some uncertainty and confusion and debate over the precise scope of its authority. Initially, the Army Corps of Engineers did not think, for example, uh, that navigable waters of the United States included wetlands, uh, and that was not resolved until litigation uh, in 1975, brought by the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, that resolved that issue in favor of the Corps having more regulatory authority than it thought it had. And after being thrown into that prior patch, interestingly enough, the Corps of Engineers did not appeal uh, the federal district court's judgment. Um, the migratory bird rule that was adopted in the 1980s certainly engendered some additional uh, confusion and debate over the scope of the Clean Water Act. The various delineation manuals adopted by the various federal agencies that have some role in dealing with wetlands uh, prompted quite a bit of confusion. Some folks uh, will remember uh, the, the infamous 1989 wetland delineation manual uh, that greatly expanded uh, those lands that were going to be considered wetlands and therefore subject to uh, the dredge and fill uh, permitting requirements under Section 404. Um, and litigate and Supreme Court decisions prior to Rapano certainly created confusion as well. The Lopez decision in 1995, which I'm sure we'll talk about quite a bit, that struck down the Gun-Free School Zones Act uh, for exceeding the scope of Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause uh, was recognized by many at the time as casting a shadow over uh, the federal government's definition of waters uh, and its assertion of authority under the Clean Water Act. In fact, one noted environmental scholar uh, said that the, the Corps and EPA regulations were clearly out of bounds uh, post-Lopez. Uh, the, the same scholar said that he thought the agencies could rewrite their regulations to achieve much the same purpose, but that as written uh, in the, so far as they asserted authority over waters and wetlands that would merely affect interstate commerce as opposed to significantly affect and, and because uh, could assert authority if that effect was even simply potential as opposed to actual, uh, that that was broader, than, that assertion of jurisdiction was broader than allowed for by the court in, in uh, 
uh, Lopez. And that scholar uh, was not some raving libertarian ideologue or opponent of federal government authority. Uh, it was our colleague Richard Lazarus, who, who works not far from here, uh, writing, in, uh, writing in, in the Environmental Forum, the magazine of the Environmental Law Institute. Uh, the Swank decision certainly increased some of the uncertainty uh, when it, it took a step toward applying the court's Lopez holding uh, to the Clean Water Act, and then certainly Rapanos has added to the uncertainty still uh, and the confusion still. I would suggest that if we want an end to this confusion, uh, we don't want this legislation. Uh, we don't want the guidance that the Bush administration recently promulgated either. Uh, the thing that would do the most to reduce uh, confusion would be uh, a notice and comment rulemaking that would actually clarify in the sort of detail that is required to provide actual guidance where federal authority ends uh, and other authority uh, begins. Uh, I should just note, among other things, one of the problems with the guidance uh, is that it adopts this theory uh, uh, that I know the Justice Department has adopted and that Justice Stevens suggested that there might be waters out there uh, that fail to satisfy Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test, but somehow satisfy the Scalia plurality and the dissent and would therefore be subject to federal jurisdiction. Uh, I think that is one of uh, several areas where the guidance goes astray. Uh, I think the, the, the waters that satisfy the Scalia plurality and the dissent but do not satisfy Kennedy is a null set. Uh, Justice Scalia, in a footnote, makes clear that the continuous surface water connection uh, that he posits as the basis for jurisdiction is a necessary but not sufficient condition uh, for federal authority. Uh, and I think that any and that, that the additional connections require uh, that he would require uh, would certainly satisfy Justice Kennedy as well. So the guidance is not going to end uh, the confusion. Uh, and I think there are aspects of the guidance which which. Uh, suggest things about the opinion which I don't think are accurate. Now, what happens if we eliminate the word navigable from the Clean Water Act? Does that suddenly end the confusion? I mean, in one sense, it, it might, we might say, well, you know, this just means we get to regulate everything, right? We get to regulate all water, all interstate waters, all intrastate waters, all impoundments thereof. So we're creating not, regulating not just natural uh, waters, but uh, those that are artificially created, salt ponds, um, if our colleague Professor Con uh, Kim Connolly were here, she would she would yell at me if I if I suggested this, that this would give the federal government authority to regulate pool, uh, swimming pools and bird baths. Um, I'm not suggesting the court would try and do so, but I think um, uh, eliminating the word navigable certainly could lead one to that conclusion. Just as the Corps of Engineers has stated in the Federal Register that if it wanted to, it could regulate somebody riding a bicycle across a wetland because the bicycle would be lifting up and redepositing. Uh, dirt as it went along, uh, and that it could regulate walking on a, on, on a wetland if it chose to. Um, I think that that's not what the Corps would actually try and do, but I think the real reason why limiting navigable does not uh, eliminate uh, or does not create certainty or eliminate confusion is because all it does is it begs the question. What does the statute do by its own terms? It says, well, we're going to regulate waters to the fullest extent of Congress's constitutional power. Okay, but that's precisely the question that needs to be answered, is what is the scope of Congress's constitutional power? And one thing we know from Lopez, one thing we know from Swank, and one thing we still know from Rapanos is that Congress's power in this area is not unlimited. We know that in the Swank decision, the majority explicitly interpreted the Clean Water Act narrowly and explicitly uh, construed the extent of jurisdiction narrowly in order to avoid what it said were very difficult and, and potentially problematic constitutional questions about the scope of federal authority, and it was going to adopt the traditional canon of construction to, to read a statute narrowly so it was to avoid the constitutional question. Now, some folks have suggested, oh, but this, this canon suddenly disappears in the Rapanos decision. 
And that is a misreading of the Rapanos decision. Certainly the plurality uh, decision notes that. But Justice Kennedy himself in the Rapanos decision makes clear that one basis for his significant nexus test is that it avoids the constitutional problem. He says, and this is a quote, as exemplified by Swank, the significant nexus test itself prevents problematic applications of the statute. Kennedy makes clear that adopting some broader test, such as that adopted embraced by the minority or as called for in this proposed legislation would involve problematic applications of the Clean Water Act and would call into question uh, Congress's constitutional authority over certain waters. Uh, unless one believes um, that the, 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 the majority, the Kennedys had a change of heart on that view, a majority of the Supreme Court still believes that uh, exerting regulatory authority over all waters inter, inter and intrastate, irrespective of their connection, to navigable waterways would raise serious uh, and uh, uh, constitutional questions. Now, as I mentioned, if one really wanted to eliminate uncertainty, what could one do? One thing one could do is have a new notice and comment rulemaking, identifying the categories of, wet, of waters and wetlands and the characteristics. That would be indicative of a significant nexus. And Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, gives lots of indications. In fact, in, in some respects, provides a roadmap of the sorts of things that could be done in a rulemaking. One of the things he suggests is permissible, and I think uh, even at least some of the justices that signed on to the Scalia plurality would accept as well, would be the Corps of Engineers and EPA identifying certain types of waters and certain types of wetlands that because of certain types of characteristics would be very likely to have a significant nexus uh, to navigable waterways. Justice Kennedy, for example, uh, in um, uh, explaining the, the holding or justifying the holding of Riverside Bayview Homes, explains that that's essentially what was done. The, some, the, the claim is not that every single adjacent wetland, wetland adjacent to a navigable waterway has to be proven to have a significant nexus uh, with navigable waterways, but that it would be reasonable for the Corps of Engineers to make that assumption and explain that sort of assumption. That is something that, that the Corps and EPA could do. I want to say a couple minutes on what I think they should do. Uh, but as well, I do think they should engage in notice and comment rulemaking. I don't think they should do so with the aim of seeking to reassert as broad a regulatory authority as they have sought to exercise in the past. Uh, rather, I think they should take a different course. Uh, I think that, and I think those, if we're interested in improving uh, the quality of water protection in this country, the aim should not be to have the federal government regulate as much as it can, uh, but rather uh, to have the federal government focus on those things uh, which if only the federal government can do or which the federal government is in a particularly good position to do. Uh, whether we like it or not, the EPA and the Corps of Engineers have limited budgets. They are not suddenly going to get uh, thousands of new staff when this or similar legislation is enacted to review permits uh, and to evaluate uh, activities, and they will have a choice of either, uh, as one environmental commenter put it once, issuing permits like a piñata, or they, or simply sitting on permits and not issuing anything at all. Uh, or they will just, as they often do, act arbitrarily. There was an empirical study several years ago looking at uh, the Corps of Engineers' uh, evaluation of individual permit applications, finding that despite what we would expect from the Corps of Engineers, it gave no consideration, at least in the actual records of the permit applications and review process, there was no evidence the Corps of Engineers uh, gave any consideration to the actual ecological impacts of permit applications uh, prior to uh, uh, asking for mitigation requirements. Uh, that certainly is not the sort of program that we should be defending. And expanding the Corps' jurisdiction and expanding the EPA's jurisdiction uh, will encourage more of that sort of regulatory activity rather than the sort that we should, uh, that we should want. So what should we ask 
the Corps of Engineers and EPA to do when it comes to waters and wetlands? Well, we should be asking them, and if there is legislation, what legislation should be focused on is ensuring that federal efforts are focused on those areas where there are clear federal interests. And certainly that involves protecting interstate waterways. Uh, I would note that the Clean Water Act, as Bob noted, is so comprehensive as to preempt interstate water pollution uh, or interstate common law nuisance actions, uh, but not intrastate uh, common law nuisance actions. Uh, and similarly, the federal interest is stronger when we're talking about interstate pollution problems when an upstream state is doing something that could damage a downstream state, uh, but not nearly so strong when we're dealing with water uses and, and land uses, the effects of which are primarily felt locally or even regionally. Uh, it's one thing for the federal government to be focused on preventing the pollution and obstruction of, of interstate navigable waterways. Uh, it is another thing uh, to be worried about the filling of uh, every uh, prairie pothole uh, or the modification of, of arroyos and the like uh, throughout the nation. And I, I think I should just, and we may want to get into this in, in discussion, I think there is an argument to be made as well that uh, federal authority under Rapanos, under or to enforce the MPDES program, uh, for example, is broader, or as a practical matter, is broader than for Section 404, because there are activities that we could characterize as upstream that would result in the discharge of a pollutant, uh, but uh, would not, uh, because of their downstream effects, but not, uh, would not themselves be occurring in waters in the United States. I think that federal government should leave room for states and non-regulatory programs and non-governmental conservation organizations uh, we often say, and it's certainly said again and again in this legislation, oh, well, the reason we have everything the federal government does in this area is because uh, states and everyone else failed. And it's not quite clear to me that that's the case in the context of wetlands. Uh, state governments regulated first, uh, and today many state governments regulate better. Every state in the continental United States with more than 10 percent of its land area classified as wetlands regulated before the NRDCV Callaway opinion that applied the Clean Water Act to wetlands. Um, the first state to do so was Massachusetts in 1963. In the case of water quality, and I'm going to be super quick because I'm getting, I'm getting the hook. Uh, the first national water quality inventory looking at the decade prior to enactment of the Clean Water Act uh, found significant improvement in many waterways. Uh, the Cuyahoga River Fire of 1969, something that occurred close to where I live now, uh, is often seen, taken as a symbol of how bad things could get before the federal government intervened. What people forget is that river fires of that sort had once been common. And in the late 19th century and early 20th century, they were common not just in Cleveland, uh, but in made, many major cities and industrial areas. Uh, that was an environmental problem uh, that had been addressed, and things were often in uh, uh, good direction. If we're concerned about protecting waters and wetlands, there are a lot of other things we should be doing instead of expanding authority of the Clean Water Act. One, uh, which I know it won't be popular, uh, we would, for example, uh, get rid of ethanol subsidies that discourage participation in conservation programs, which for, in the case of prairie potholes uh, is a, is a very, has a very significant negative effect, and expanding the scope of the Clean Water Act, I would note, uh, will have very little effect on protecting those wetlands. And my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Okay. Uh, Well, unlike my colleagues, I'm not happy to be in D.C. <laughs> it was 42 degrees at my house this morning. It was nice and cool, and I was looking forward to a crisp early autumn day in the Green Mountains of Vermont with my little cider press out front and my kids kicking the soccer ball around in the gentle twilight of a nice, cool New England evening. Ah, alas. We do have a little bit of Yankee wisdom I'll share with you from Vermont, and that is, um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so the question, obviously, is what's broke? And does the Overstar bill fix it? And what's broke is that we no longer have anything resembling a workable 
understandable, predictable tool for determining the scope of federal geographic jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. And who broke it was the five-member majority of Swank. Swank is the source of the problem. Rapanos has compounded it, but Swank's the problem. And the problem is that Justice Rehnquist and his colleagues in their infinite wisdom thought it was necessary to, quote, give some effect to the term navigable in the definition of navigable waters, waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. You see, up till that point, we were all quite happy, um, well, more or less, um, with a settled scope of federal jurisdiction. Did you know that, that we had a settled scope of federal jurisdiction prior to Swain? We did. 30 years of it, over 30 years of it, and maybe a little bit different than some of my colleagues. I don't think there's really been any inconsistency whatsoever from EPA on the scope of the Clean Water Act right from day one. The very first general counsel's opinion in 1973 on the scope of the Clean Water Act nailed it and said that we will exercise our jurisdiction to the fullest extent of Congress's constitutional authority under the Commerce Clause. So there, there really hasn't been a whole lot of inconsistency, notwithstanding some of the justices of the Supreme Court attempt to create such inconsistencies over the history of the Clean Water Act leading up to Swank. It was basically the entire tributary systems of navigable waters. That's what the regulations said after NRDC versus Callaway. That's what they've always said. That's what they say today. The courts have never struck down the regulations, struck down the migratory bird rule, which wasn't a rule at all. It was language in the preamble. Rapanos didn't strike down any regulations, remanded the case for some more thinking and cogitating. So the regs that have been on the books since NRDC versus Callaway are still there. And the scope of federal jurisdiction articulated in those regulations is the same. It's always been the same. And it's been consistently upheld by the courts over 30 plus years. Repeatedly. In fact, it was upheld by the courts post-Swank. By five circuit courts. We'll ignore the Fifth Circuit for now. And all district courts to have considered the question something like a total of 50 or 60 opinions of the lower courts and Swank have all upheld that jurisdictional scope of the Clean Water Act. Even the Fourth Circuit, a very conservative panel, I might add, of the Fourth Circuit in Deaton, saw no constitutional problems whatsoever with asserting federal jurisdiction over the entire tributary systems of the nation's navigable waters. So... That's what's broke. That's what's broke. And the Supreme Court broke it. And there's only one place we can fix it. And that's here. And that's Oberstar for now. Unless somebody's got a better idea. So, um, not surprisingly, I think Oberstar's bill is a good idea. I think, in fact, it's the only idea. Now, let's be clear about what we're not debating here. We're really not debating whether the 404 dredge fill permit program is an ideal wetlands protection statute because it is not. It isn't even a good regulatory statute because it doesn't regulate historically and even today the major source of wetlands loss, which is drainage, not the addition of dredged material. That's not even a complete regulatory program. Aside from the fact that it probably doesn't make sense for the federal government to be regulating each and every wetland loss all over the country. <gasps> There's a shock coming from me, perhaps, but it doesn't make sense. But it is by default the only national wetland protection program we have. So those of us who've spent 
a lifetime trying to make it work and defending it, are sort of stuck. I wish somebody would put forward a real national wetlands protection law like Justice Scalia called for in Rapanos. I'd love it. And if it was all voluntary and all money and buy all 100 million acres of remaining wetlands, whoopee. But that's probably not going to happen. So we're left with 404. And 404 has been the wedge on this issue, notwithstanding that the jurisdictional predicate for the Clean Water Act covers everything. It covers the 402 program, covers the hazardous and oil spill liability program, everything. TMDLs, water quality standards, 319 non-point source pollution grant programs, everything is predicated on the jurisdictional scope of the Clean Water Act. So it is incredibly important to, to the whole national approach to dealing with water quality problems. But the 404 program has been the wedge, and as uh, my colleague Bob Percival has articulated here, there's, there's basically three Supreme Court decisions in Riverside unanimously. The court got it right. Um, I'd give them a B plus because they probably should have gone even further and uh, completely resolved the question of Congress's constitutional authority and the scope of the act's jurisdiction over non-adjacent or isolated wetlands, of which there are none. Really, the better term for these wetlands that I've come up with is jurisdictionally challenged wetlands. That's, that's really a more... Um, logical way of thinking about them because, of course, there is no such thing as an isolated wetland. And Stephen Eagle has made that point clear from John Muir's famous quote. Um, in Swank, they got it wrong. Uh, five of them um, got it spectacularly wrong. And then in Rapano's Carabelle, they didn't get it at all. Uh, so we can no longer look to the Supreme Court for any guidance uh, on this question. Um, and in the lower courts since Swank, and I believe Reed Hopper is going to address this, so I won't steal any of his time or thunder. Uh, but once again, I'm seeing the same pattern. It's a little different and a little more disjointed than what we saw post-Swank. I'm seeing the same thing. I'm seeing the circuit courts insisting on not rolling back the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, as some would like to see it, and trying to invent various theories and formulas for how to find jurisdiction over waters that might otherwise be questionable under at least the plurality ruling in Swain. So I have four points, too. One, Congress has to straighten this mess out. The buck has to stop here. Guidance that's been issued, nice try. Actually, I'm not as critical of it as some of my friends and colleagues in the community. I think given the mess... Uh, that the agencies were given with Rapanos, they, they did the best they could, um, close enough for government work. But it isn't going to resolve much of anything. The field staff that I've talked to, the EPA staff, the core staff, have no idea uh, how to implement it in any uh, logical fashion with the resources that they have. Guidance isn't going to fix it. Rulemaking, I hear a lot of talk about rulemaking. Three or four of the justices in Rapanos' care bill say, oh, we need rules. Rules can't resolve statutory intent. It's not going to happen. First of all, the rules themselves aren't going to happen. This administration isn't going to promulgate a rule. I'll eat your car if they do. Uh, secondly, I don't know what the next administration is going to do, but it's going to take a hell of a long time before they do it. So, no, uh, waiting for Godot, waiting for a rule to fix it all, uh-uh, not going to happen. Um, courts, yeah, well, you know, the courts will muddle through, just like Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, in his very helpful way, his very leadership way, said, muddle through. So that's what they'll do, and my prediction is they'll muddle through finding jurisdiction more often than not. 
Now, so how do you like that? In the meantime, of course, wetlands will be lost by default. Coral look the other way, throw up his hands, don't know. Developers will go ahead, hope they don't get caught. Um, the more sophisticated developers with a lot of financial risk involved, they're going to be very leery and nervous about proceeding as if, well, yeah, we're fine. We don't need a permit here. So not a good situation. Point two, I do think Oberstar will fix the problem as much as it probably can be fixed. Uh, it does, in my view, simply codify the existing regulatory scope of the Clean Water Act, the one that, I've, as I've said, has been upheld uh, for three decades. Uh, I don't think it expands it. If it does, it's, it's some creative argument and lawyering that would do it. It's not intended to expand it. I don't think it will expand it. I think it codifies the pre-swank world, which, as I say, was a world that most people had figured out how to live with, at least. Um, I think it's cer certainly consistent with the post-swank case law that I, that I referred to, the Oberstar bill, I mean, and the, the, existed, the jurisdiction uh, in the existing regulations. Um, so I do think Oberstar will... Uh, is the only way to fix uh, the Supreme Court problem. Um, whether the language over Overstar does it, whether it goes far enough, whether it could be tweaked and improved, eh, those are all good questions. But as a starting point, certainly, as a markup vehicle, good, good piece of legislation. Point three, I don't see any constitutional problem. ELI just put out a nice, quickie, not quickie, but succinct. Uh, study of all the constitutional bases, Commerce Clause, Treaty Power, Property Clause, Necessary and Property Clause, I commend it to your attention. I don't have time to talk about it, uh, but it's a good piece of work. And I think it puts to rest any serious doubt about Congress's constitutional authority to protect the waters of the United States. Uh, point four, um, I, I think this the, the broad federal uh, jurisdiction that I'm talking about here is absolutely necessary to achieve the purpose of the Clean Water Act, which, after all, is not to. Um, preserve the navigable capacity of the nation's waters, but to restore and maintain their chemical, physical, and biological integrity. And you're not going to do that with a statute based on a 1954 dictionary definition. I'm sorry, but it won't work. We have to think ecologically. It, it's not necessary for the law to be in perfect sync with science, but the closer we can get law, to scientific reality, at least approaching what science is telling us about the complexity of aquatic ecosystems. I think that's a good thing. That's that's better than a law that's diverging off into another direction, which has nothing to do with our understanding of how ecological systems work, the interrelationship of streams and wetlands and rivers and lakes and estuaries. We can't intelligently manage our activities and ourselves unless we think that way and the law should reflect that thinking. In other words, an ecosystem based thinking. A few quick factoids for you. This whole battle is about headwaters. This is about first and second order streams and their associated tributary uh, wetlands. That's what we're talking about. That's the battleground that we're talking about. That's where 70 percent of the flow of the navigable waters comes from. That's where about 60 or 70 percent of the public water supplies are found. That's where 45 percent of the point sources that are regulated currently under the Clean Water Act are found. Those are important resources. We ought to protect them. Thank you. And last, uh, Reed Howard.
it certainly became apparent during uh, Professor Eagle's introductions that if I'm going to uh, get equal billing with my callings, I need to increase my curriculum vitae. <laughs> there are, um, in addition to the difficulties that the Rapanos decision um, created in not settling the question as to the full scope of the commerce power or the full scope of the Clean Water Act, I think there are some very specific uh, areas of agreement uh, with which at least uh, five members in the majority uh, would uh, um, accept. Uh, number one, that there are indeed uh, constitutional limits uh, to uh, the commerce power and that it cannot be relied upon to regulate all waters in the United States. Uh, number two, that a, a mere hydrological connection between a wetland and a navigable, in fact, water is not sufficient, even under the Clean Water Act, to establish federal jurisdiction. Number three, uh, that uh, insubstantial connections uh, between uh, wetlands and navigable, in fact, waters are insufficient to establish jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Justice Kennedy was quite clear on this point. Uh, and, of course, uh, the Scalia plurality was quite express about it. In addition, I would suggest that we have agreement among uh, the four in the plurality and Justice Kennedy that the Swank decision did more than invalidate the migratory bird rule, but rather prohibited federal jurisdiction over isolated ponds and wetlands. Um, <clears throat> this should have put to rest uh, the argument uh, that, uh, that Swank merely uh, um, applied to, to uh, the migratory bird rule and is limited to its facts. It's much broader than that. I think the final point that uh, there is some agreement on in the Supreme Court uh, under the Rapanos decision is that Riverside Bayview is to be limited to its facts. Justice Kennedy suggested that uh, <clears throat> the uh, only factual situation addressed by the court was a wetland abutting a navigable, in fact, water, and that uh, the Corps could not rely on that case uh, to categorically regulate wetlands uh, that abut or, adjacent, or that are adjacent to non-navigable waters. So I think that that's, uh, those are significant uh, clarifications, <clears throat> uh, and they would be uh, uh, advantageous were they to be followed by the Corps and the EPA and were they to be accepted by the courts below. Well, where do we stand post-Rapanos? Uh, with respect to the litigation. The big debate uh, after Rapanos now is which is the controlling opinion. Is it the Kennedy significant nexus test or is it the, the Scalia <coughs> plurality, uh, which limits uh, federal regulation to uh, navigable fact waters and those uh, traditional uh, uh, bodies of waters like rivers, lakes, and streams that are relatively permanent and wetlands that abut and are indistinguishable from those covered waters. Well, Rapanos and Carabell are back in the district court uh, on, on remand. And under the Sixth Circuit rubric, uh, the, the federal government will be able to establish jurisdiction under either the Scalia plurality approach or the Kennedy significant nexus test, either one. We've had a few circuit courts that have addressed uh, Rapanos. And uh, one is the uh, Ninth Circuit in the city of Healdsburg. In which case, uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, determined that the controlling opinion is the uh, Kennedy significant nexus opinion. The court uh, applied uh, this uh, Marx versus Hill rule, 
that says that the controlling opinion is that opinion that would be agreed to by those who concurred in the judgment and which is the most narrowly drawn. And without much more analysis than that, this Ninth Circuit decision came down on the side of the significant nexus test. The Seventh Circuit in United States v. Gerke also concluded that the significant nexus test is controlling under Rapanos because, in its words, it was the least restrictive of federal authority. So we have these two circuits that say that the only standard on which jurisdiction may be based is the significant nexus test as per Kennedy in the Rapanos decision. But we now have a conflict between those circuits and the First Circuit in United States v. Johnson. In the Johnson case, the court said that the Gerke decision was wrong, that it makes just as much sense to declare that the controlling opinion is the one that's the most restrictive of federal authority, not the least restrictive. In any event, the court said it really can't tell which is controlling opinion, so either the Scalia plurality or the Kennedy significant nexus test could be applied. So we have a split between those, the Ninth and Seventh and the First. The Pacific Legal Foundation represents Gerke and Johnson, and we have filed petitions to the Supreme Court in those cases. They're now pending. We're asking the court to resolve the conflict as to the controlling opinion in Rapanos. So, again, we're back in the court, and it's anybody's bet as to whether or not we'll get any resolution. Now, another couple of cases to keep an eye on that are coming up in the circuits is U.S. v. Lucas. This is a criminal case that has been briefed and argued in the Fifth Circuit, and it raises the question as to what's the jurisdiction of the court, and specifically what is the controlling opinion under Rapanos. You may recall that it was the Fifth Circuit that ruled prior to Rapanos that the Swank decision was correct and that it limited federal authority under the Clean Water Act to actual navigable waters and wetlands abutting those waters. Then the Second Circuit is considering currently a case called Simsbury-Avon v. Medicon. We're representing Medicon Gun Club in the case. In that case, the district court determined that the wetlands in that particular case were not jurisdictional under both the Kennedy Significant Nexus Test and the Scalia plurality. Well, what has been the federal response now that we have this Rapanos decision? As has been mentioned, we have the EPA and the court guidance. In our view, this is just business as usual. What will not be regulated categorically will be regulated based on the Significant Nexus rubric. We think that will be a pro forma effort, even though Justice Kennedy requires a site-specific analysis. It's not going to take much for a hydrologist to determine that wetlands in the region have a significant impact. The Corps of Engineers has already on record argued in the Johnson case and other cases that all wetlands are significant by definition. We think that this guidance really goes too far in that it authorizes the categorical regulation of wetlands that abut non-navigable waters. As was previously mentioned, under the plurality test, it's not enough that the wetland abut a non-navigable water 
that may be permanently uh, a permanent fixed feature. It must be indistinguishable such that you can't tell where the water ends and the land begins. You've got to uh, have a connection like that that was upheld in Riverside uh, Bayview. Uh, also, Justice Kennedy said that the agencies cannot regulate categorically wetlands adjacent to non-navigable waters without adopting new regulations. So these new guidelines uh, are inconsistent with both the plurality and Justice Kennedy's opinions. They also, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, don't constitute merely an interim uh, situation. I think that the intent is that this, this guidance would take the place of any future regulations. I think that's a mistake. And uh, <clears throat> expressly, the guidance does not uh, come to grips with the Swank decision. Uh, although the court was quite clear in Swank, and as I indicated earlier, all factions on the court interpreted Swank to prohibit uh, regulation of isolated uh, ponds and water bodies, uh, the court still asserts regulations over those types of, uh, of water features. Well, what about the Overstar bill? Um, <clears throat> Contrary to, to my colleagues, uh, I disagree that there has been 30 years of consistent um, um, regulatory interpretation as to federal jurisdiction. Quite the contrary. Uh, GAO uh, uh, was able to establish that that's the case in both Swank and uh, in, uh, in Rapanos. Uh, the, the majority and the uh, plurality castigated the agency for its ever-changing definition of regulations. In 1974, two years after the uh, promulgation of the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, the Corps said that its uh, jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act only extended to traditional navigable waters. Uh, in, in Swank, the Supreme Court said that was a correct interpretation. Uh, also, uh, the migratory bird rule was not adopted till after Riverside Bayview. The court did not assert uh, jurisdiction over drainage ditches and the like until after Riverside Bayview. There has uh, certainly not been a consistent interpretation. Now, as to the notion that this bill merely codifies the current regulations, that is patently wrong. I'll give you an example. The current regulations exclude from federal jurisdiction wetlands adjacent to other wetlands. That does not appear anywhere in the Oberstar bill. Uh, I also disagree respectfully with uh, Professor Percival, who said that this uh, bill would not apply except in cases where it's established that there is an appropriate connection with interstate commerce. That's exactly why this bill is unconstitutional. It does not uh, include any jurisdictional requirement. It categorically states that Congress has the authority to regulate all waters <clears throat> um, without limit. Now, that's clearly unconstitutional. Uh, as I said, one of the things that's clear from Rapano, should have been clear from Swank, was that there are limits to the commerce uh, power. And uh, um, again, Roberts uh, castigated the, uh, the government for not having recognized that from its prior uh, decision in, in Swank. Um, I would uh, <clears throat> just add that I think that uh, what is really required here, uh, we'll, we'll never reach a situation where there's uh, clarity, but I think what's really required here that uh, to, to achieve some clarity and to uh, protect wetlands at the same time recognizing constitutional limits is for the government through regulation 
to adopt the, uh, the plurality approach in the Rapanos decision. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Hopper. And now, uh, before we get to questions, I'd like to ask the panelists, starting with Professor Percival, whether they have any brief comments occasioned by the other presentations. Yeah, just, just a, a couple of brief comments. Um, uh, I'm glad to see Jonathan make the point that the Corps has limited resources, and so they're not going to be regulating bird bass. Usually when we have these debates, you hear all kinds of outrageous anecdotes, and we didn't do that today. Uh, I do have to disagree with Jonathan, though, that a rulemaking can fix this, because what's unclear is how far the legal authority goes. So how can an agency define rules when it doesn't know exactly how far its legal authority goes? Uh, with respect to uh, Mr. Hopper's argument about the bill by Oberstar is clearly unconstitutional, uh, I just absolutely don't see how that can be because the bill says we're extending federal jurisdiction to the limits of our constitutional authority. This is what Justice Breyer said in his separate dissenting opinion. He said his view is that the authority of the Army Corps of Engineers under the Clean Water Act extends to the limits of congressional power to regulate interstate commerce. All Congress needs to do is to confirm that that's what his intent is, and that will have the effect of clarifying things. Jonathan says that won't clarify things, but what it will do is it will make clear that in a case like Rapanos, those wetlands, wetlands that are adjacent to non-navigable tributaries of navigable waters, are clearly covered, and that the only dispute will be constitutional challenges. Do, is this so insignificant that Congress didn't have the constitutional authority because it has no impact on interstate commerce? That will be what the legal challenges will be limited to instead of having all, all these debates about what it, did Congress intend. Justice Scalia said, well, this decision might have environmental impacts. That's what our critics will say is that we're harming the environment. He said, it's not my problem. It's Congress's fault because I'm interpreting what Congress did. Congress is the one that can set Justice Scalia straight by saying this was our intent, what Justice Breyer said it was, to extend federal jurisdiction to the limits of Congress's constitutional authority. Thank you, Bob. Uh, John? Just a couple of quick things. One, on, on that last point, I think that in legislation, the, the clearest way to avoid these sorts of problems would be to include a jurisdictional element. I mean, this is something that's done traditionally in federal criminal law. You know, the federal arson statute uh, is a good example because the Supreme Court's actually parsed the jurisdictional element there. It only applies to arsons. Uh, that uh, substantially affect interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court is, in a unanimous opinion, in 1999, I think, U.S. versus Jones, explained what that would be. You know, the, uh, this is something Congress does all the time. The, the federal par partial birth abortion uh, ban includes a jurisdictional element. It only applies to uh, procedures performed inter affecting interstate commerce. That would be a way to remove or, or to, to, to remove constitutional questions from this sort of legislation. Um, it would, though, require in prosecutions or in challenges to permit uh, uh, or challenges to jurisdiction that the agency actually put forward evidence of a substantial effect on interstate commerce, uh, and that may be, you know, that, that may be uh, a drag on agency resources or something that the agency doesn't want to do. Uh, really quickly, um, I disagree with Pat that we, we do have national wetland protection programs. We don't have a national, other than, other than 404, a national wetland regulation program. Uh, but regulation is not the only way of protecting uh, wetlands and other environmental resources. Uh, throughout the 1990s, various non-regulatory incentive-based programs were uh, restoring and creating in excess of 200,000 acres of wetlands per year. This is several times more than the amount, than the uh, uh, gross acreage that was uh, 
uh, created or restored under Section 404 mitigation. And the failure rate for these programs uh, uh, was much lower because these programs were done by people that actually cared about the ecological function of wetlands rather than by developers that were happy to simply turn on a hose if it would get them a permit. Um, science doesn't get us out of this. Uh, ecological interconnection, yes, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So what? So is economic interconnection. So is social interconnection. Uh, the complexity and interconnectedness of systems uh, does not by itself justify centralized regulatory programs any more than uh, the, the, the interconnectedness uh, of dynamic economic systems would justify central economic planning. Thank you, John. Pat? Well, I'd like Jonathan and, and Reed to draw the line on the map for me where the limit of Congress's power is under the Commerce Clause. Is it on? It should be uh, lit up. Is it on? Okay. Uh, I wish we had a map of any watershed. Pick a watershed. Chesapeake Bay. Where does it stop, Jonathan or Reed? Where does it stop? What's the principled way to draw that line on the map? Reed, any comments? <clears throat> well, I uh, would uh, say with respect to the constitutionally, constitutionality of the proposed bill, it doesn't save a bill to say that uh, we can regulate anything we want to the limits of the Commerce Clause. Uh, that does not save the bill from uh, going too far. It does not save it from uh, constitutional attack. Um, <clears throat> this uh, proposed bill simply says that uh, we intend to regulate to the limits of the commerce power, but we don't believe there are any limits to the commerce power. Therefore, we're going to regulate all waters. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's clearly unacceptable uh, to a majority of the members of the, of the Supreme Court and clearly inconsistent, inconsistent with any reasonable interpretation of the commerce power. Um, <clears throat> the uh, other thing I would just add uh, to what uh, Professor Adler said, I was interested to uh, read uh, not too long ago the April uh, report on the president's uh, wetland program in which it was uh, reported that uh, <clears throat> through voluntary efforts uh, between uh, or among uh, federal, state, and private uh, interests. Uh, uh, the, uh, in the past two years, uh, conservation of wetlands had occurred to the extent of a half a million acres, uh, I mean uh, 500 million acres, and uh, um, an equal amount had, uh, had been uh, created uh, compared to the 25,000 acres that had been uh, saved or improved under the uh, Clean Water Act. Uh, the uh, Clean Water Act is not uh, the, uh, the flagship for, uh, um, for environmental protection or wetland protect protection specifically. Uh, other efforts uh, have greater results. The debate here is really not uh, about uh, merely uh, uh, what can we do to, to uh, determine the scope of the Commerce Clause or what can we to do to, uh, to protect wetlands to the maximum extent uh, Possible, we have to recognize that, uh, notwithstanding our uh, our desire to improve the human condition, we must do so in a way that's constitutional and, and uh, recognizes the rule of law. And in this case, uh, regulation of local wetlands uh, should uh, and and do uh, uh, devolve upon the states and not just the federal government. Thank you, Reed. Uh, now it's time for questions. I have two requests of you. First. Uh, because we do not have a handheld microphone, please make your question uh, short and simple so that I can repeat it for the, uh, uh, for the tape. And second, please end your question with a question mark. Yes, sir. Professor, I have a question. Uh, 
to ask about the scope of this bill and like the panelists to comment. It appears that the scope of the bill invokes the necessary proper clause, the treaty powers. And I guess the question for the panelists is that is, is the implication that those uh, constitutional authorities would that be broader than than the Commerce Clause? Okay, the question is, does the invocation in the Oberstar Bill of the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Treaty Clause, in addition to the Commerce Clause, affect the bill's constitutionality? I think so. I think the treaty power is a plenary power. Missouri versus Holland is one of the hallmarks, of course, of constitutional jurisprudence on the scope of Congress's treaty power. I don't think that just simply waiving the talisman of the treaty power does it. I, I think what you have to do is connect the specific wetland resources that are most questionable under the Commerce Clause, which would be Perry Potholes, Playa Lakes, Carolina Bays, um, and the like, um, as habitat for the birds that are protected by four international conventions, two protocols, both of the latest protocols aimed at habitat conservation with the duh, you don't have ducks without wetlands. So in my view, although I think there's a strong race-based commerce clause rationale for protecting these so-called isolated wetlands, to me, I think a stronger constitutional basis for Congress is doing that with regard to habitat that is necessary to fulfill the United States obligations under these four conventions. I think the treaty power is golden for that kind of rationale. I'd like to see more of that kind of basis developed in the, in the legislative record uh, underlying whatever is done, Oberstar or whatever else. Yeah, um, a couple of things. I mean, one, the necessary and proper clause is not uh, a freestanding power. It, it merely makes explicit what was generally understood, which is if you're going to have the power to regulate commerce, there may be things that you need to do to effectuate that power. Uh, and so, for example, in this context, if uh, the power to regulate commerce clearly includes power over navigability, which is something that I think is incontestable, necessary and proper clause, Congress can do certain things that aren't actually in navigable waters to protect those navigable waters. I think that's the, the logic at the end of the day under, underlying a significant nexus test, is that necessary and proper clause allows you to, to, work, or to, to work around this area, but it doesn't allow you to do something that's freestanding. Uh, I don't think um, uh, the invocation of the federal, of the federal uh, property power does all that much unless you're talking about federal lands, which there's already plenty of authority. I don't think the treaty power does all that much. I think uh, Missouri versus Holland uh, is a very short, uh, over-interpreted case. It dealt with a transboundary resource, um, and so I don't think it can be used as a freestanding plenary authority uh, for uh, uh, these sorts of regulations. And one, one very basic structural reason for that is that it would be bizarre to have a situation where the president and two-thirds of the Senate could, in, in cooperation with a foreign power, grant to Congress powers that were withheld to it under Article I. I mean, structurally, that just would not make sense. Uh, it only makes sense if we're talking about something like a transboundary resource Missouri versus Holland dealt with migratory birds. I would just note, though, with prairie potholes, this is an example. What's the biggest threat to prairie potholes? Well, farming. Well, I believe this bill preserves the, the agricultural exemption um, and some of the other exemptions that are built into Section 404. So if we're really concerned with prairie potholes, we shouldn't be worried about trying to reverse Rapanos. We should be worried about things that are encouraging farmers to uh, plow over prairie potholes uh, rather than protect them. And that has nothing to do with Section 404 of the Clean Water Act. That has to do with other things that are going on. Yeah, as far as the commerce power goes, I, prior to Gonzalez versus Raich, I think there was 
a narrow set of activities where people were dirt biking for fun that had nothing to do with commerce that might endanger endangered species, where you had some question, could that be regulated? But Gonzales versus Raich, by saying you can prohibit growing medical marijuana in your backyard because it's part of integral to preserving the integrity of this larger federal regulatory program, I think has now resolved that. So in my view, the commerce power would cover just about anything that's necessary for Congress to protect, to preserve the integrity of the nation's waters. But it can't hurt to also cite the treaty power. Thank you. Reed, did you want to hop in here? Yes. Uh, uh, Pat referenced the 1920 Holland case uh, in which the Supreme Court indicated that uh, the treaty uh, could constitute an independent basis for uh, regulation. However, the caveat is that, uh, that the treaty be constitutional. Uh, one would infer from that uh, that the treaty would be constitutional if it was within the enumerated powers granted to Congress, but does not extend those powers. Um, the, uh, with, with, uh, um, what was the other issue that... Uh, necessary and proper. <clears throat> oh, yes. With respect to the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, uh, Justice Thomas, I, I think, uh, stated in, in the Rice case that uh, uh, if the regulation exceeds the commerce power, then it's neither necessary nor proper uh, for, it, uh, for the further regulation. Uh, so I, I don't think that uh, Rice uh, um, allows for a free reeling uh, regulation under the commerce power. Okay. Next question. Let, let me. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, Bruce Myers with the Environmental Law Institute, and thanks to Professor Brenta for the plug to our, our time law paper. Um, actually, a question for Mr. Hopper. I mean, this is an incredibly serious question. The latest version of the, the draft of Overstar that, that I see anyway, uh, the definition of waters of the United States suggests that X, Y, and Z, A, B, C water types um, are waters that are included to the fullest extent of our power under the Constitution, our legislative power. And I guess I'm just wondering, I think one of the other panelists may have even characterized this as a tautology, and how on its face could that be unconstitutional? Or where would be, what would make that language unconstitutional? I understand that there could be a dispute over what the line is and how you draw it and what's in and what's out, but what about that bill would make it itself unconstitutional? That's yeah, let, me, let me just repeat the question, if I may. The question is, given that the Oberstar bill does contain descriptions of, of types of water that would be included under the bill, what is it that makes it too general to be constitutional? Let me read the, the language from the uh, proposed act itself. I, I think I've got the latest version. Uh, waters of the United States define the term waters of the United States means all waters, subject to the ebb and flow of the tide, the territorial seas, and all interstate and interstate waters and their tributaries, including lakes, rivers, streams, including intermittent streams, mudflats, sandflats, wetlands, sloughs, prairie potholes, wet meadows, playa lakes, natural ponds, and all impoundments of the foregoing, to the fullest extent that these waters or activities affecting these waters are subject to the legislative power of Congress. Um, that, that caveat, as I was saying, you know, that are subject to the legislative power of Congress does not save it because this, is, this language by its terms applies to all waters in the United States. And I think it's clear from both Swank and Rapanos that at least a majority of the court would not accept that all waters are within even the furthest limit of the commerce power. But, but Reed, then, what's the significance of saying to the extent of powers under the Constitution? 
You're just reading that out of the bill and saying, therefore, it's unconstitutional. No, no, no. no. This, this, this language calls – this language is an abdication of Congress's role to determine the extent of its own Commerce Clause power. This calls for the – for the courts to determine where the line is. That's – that's one of the problems with it. But it's not saying we want to regulate it whether we can or not constitutionally. It says we want to regulate to the limit of our constitutional power. What it's saying is we will regulate all waters until we're told by a court we can't. I think he's right. Actually, I think Reed's right on that. But I would say it doesn't matter what Bob Percival and I think about the extent of the Commerce Clause. It matters what Anthony Kennedy thinks. And we're all trying to figure that out. I mean, he clearly – I agree with Jonathan on this. He clearly is troubled by the current regulations. And so a law that simply codifies them is asking for trouble. And I'll be honest about that. And unless – unless this Congress, if it enacts something, does more than simply invoke, you know, some kind of magical incantation that we're using all the authority we have, I don't – I don't know that it's going to survive. I don't know that it's going to survive. We need five votes. We don't need four. We need five. And we need – those of us who care about this issue have got to figure out how we get Kennedy on this. And we don't have him yet. So I'll leave it there. But it clearly would blow away Scalia saying this is what Congress really meant, this really crabbed interpretation. So you've completely reversed Scalia's opinion. And that has accomplished something really major. And so everything's now weighed on what are the limits of the constitutional power. Right. Not what is the limit of what Congress intended. If I could just jump in. One or two sentences. Two sentences. First sentence. If the goal is certainty, punting this to the courts and saying we can regulate as much as we can regulate certainly doesn't do that. So if this is a tautological provision in the bill, the certainty argument for the bill goes away. Second sentence. This – Rapanos was decided after Gonzales v. Raich, and Justice Kennedy still makes reference to the constitutional concerns that motivated the Court's decision in Swank as a basis for the significant nexus test, which suggests that Justice Kennedy believes that even after Gonzales v. Raich, there is a limit to Congress's authority in this area that regulating, for example, wetlands adjacent to non-navigable tributaries would implicate. Thank you. Archer? Yes, I'd like to add that we have reporting things for the Oberstar Bill clarify the legality of the actions of private conservationists who, in the course of engaging in conservation, create new wetlands? Well, I think it will clarify that activity in any water of the United States is subject to federal regulation unless it falls within one of the farm exemptions, which themselves are ambiguous, until the first court gets a hold of this and overlays its interpretation of the act. I'm curious, panelists' thoughts on the impact of this legislation on cooperative federalism. 
given the breadth of the language and scope of all waters, whether or not that can reach uh, groundwaters and also the historic role of the cooperative uh, approach between states and, and federal governments regulate waters. Okay, the question is, uh, what does the panel think will be the impact of this very broad and comprehensive bill on cooperative federalism? And the possibility of preemption. I think the states are going to support it. The majority, the vast majority of the states are going to support it. Um, how they're going to do that politically with, uh, you know, the vagaries of the National Governors Association and other entities to deal with, I don't know. But if you, I think Bob already cited these, these, these statistics to you, but when, when the advance notice of proposed rulemaking, the trial balloon that was floated by the Bush administration following Swankta, how far should we roll back the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act and PRM? Resoundingly, I forget what it was, between 35 and 40 states came in and said, don't you dare roll back the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. Maybe we didn't like it 30 years ago, but we're, 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 we'd rather have what we know, the devil we know, than when we don't. And our programs are predicated on the scope of the, of the Clean Water Act as it's been interpreted and applied over those 30 years. Leave it alone. And, of course, that's what the Bush administration ultimately decided to do. When the Rapanos case came up, same thing. I forget how many amicus briefs there were uh, from the states, but in excess, more than half of the states weighing in uh, on the side of the federal government, even in those cases, which, you know, admittedly was pushing the envelope pretty hard on federal jurisdiction. So I don't the, the concern that's being raised about federalism. I don't think it's real. I don't think the states want to see the federal government exiting from the field of Clean Water Act protection and regulation. I just don't believe it. Brent, I think I think there's some serious questions there. I mean, certainly the question of whether or not this would uh, call for the federal regulation of groundwater or authorize that is a big question. Um, whether or not the, this, the effect this would have on uh, certain irrigation systems, uh, certain water systems is, I think, a real question. I know in the in the hearing that was held on the bill, there was some discussion of that. I think it's something that really hasn't been looked at. One quick point about federalism. Federalism is not there to protect the states. Federalism is not about the states. Federalism is about the people. Uh, the, the, the point of federalism is not to say the federal government gets to do whatever it wants as long as the states say okay, because there are lots of times the federal government, the states will be happy to have the federal government give them money and regulate in place of the states so the states don't have to be accountable for those decisions. I mean, that, that, that is a federalism that, that some could, might argue, but that's not the federalism that our Constitution uh, sets up. Uh, and so the fact that states are happy to get the benefits of these progr- wetland regulatory programs as long as, and are really eager to get them as long as they don't have to bear the political and financial costs themselves as states of implementing them tells us nothing about whether or not uh, uh, federalism principles are implicated by expanding federal authority in this way. Other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's disconcerting about the overstart bill, getting back to this, is, is, is the delegation of authority, essentially a legislative function, um, to, to the administrative agencies. And I'd like the, the speakers to comment on that if they see that as an issue. For example, could Congress say, uh, you know, we, we pretend to legislate here to the fullest, fullest extent of our authority, and we want uh, people punished to the fullest extent of the law, so long as it's not cruel and unusual. And you guys decide. It seems to me it's like hunting the issue out of the legislature to some of the core. Okay. The question is whether the Oberstar bill, by 
purporting to regulate to the fullest extent of Congress's constitutional authority implicitly delegates to regulatory agencies those specific determinations which Congress itself is constitutionally mandated to do under the non-delegation doctrine? I certainly don't view it that way. I view it as basically a narrow response that says we think the court got it wrong in both Swank and Rapanos. We think the four justices in the dissent were correct in saying that we had indeed adopted a very comprehensive regulatory program. The court itself has said several times that they're not really as capable as the expert administrative agencies. Certainly, if the agency goes hog wild, they can always have their rules struck down as arbitrary and capricious, and the courts have been continually active in doing that. But here we've got a situation where, as a result of those decisions, there's mass confusion, and there's been a substantial cutback in federal regulatory authority. And by Congress weighing in and saying, you got it wrong in those cases, we'll go back to how the dissent read the law in both cases, I don't see as any major new delegation. After American trucking, I don't think there's much, there's many legs left in the non-delegation doctrine. I mean, the court says there has to be an intelligible principle in the legislative delegation. And in that case, the intelligible principle was that EPA was directed to protect the public health. So if that's an intelligible principle, then I think probably Oberstar safely passes that kind of test. I don't think this is a delegation to the agencies. It's quite clear that Congress is intending here to regulate all waters. This is a delegation to the judicial branch from the legislative branch, and I think that's an abdication. Whether or not it's an abdication, I again say I don't think it's a good thing to do. I think the Congress ought to develop a much better record for even the codification of the existing regulatory scope of the Clean Water Act. I think it would be a mistake if Congress doesn't take that seriously and develop the kind of record that would pass muster with Mr. Justice Kennedy. Let me agree with Pat, which since it happens so rarely, that Congress should take more responsibility in the nitty-gritty and the details. I didn't call for that because, I mean, that's something Congress doesn't do anymore. It's now routine, and I know I probably shouldn't say this in this building, but it's now routine for members of Congress to vote for legislation and say the courts will sort out if there are parts of this that are unconstitutional. And we saw folks on the right doing that with campaign finance. We saw folks on the left doing that with the Detainee Treatment Act and the Military Commissions Act. I mean, that's a common thing to do today. I think it does undermine accountability. I think it does abdicate legislative responsibility. So, too, does members of Congress not making for themselves an independent judgment on the constitutionality of legislative act itself a basis for whether or not they will vote against something. But we're not operating in that environment. We're operating in an environment where what aspects of a water body make it connected or not connected to navigable waters is the sort of thing that an agency is going to determine or a court is going to determine. And given those choices, I would rather it be done by an agency through notice and comment rulemaking rather than in the context of litigation, both because I think it's more responsive to public concerns, but also the things that make litigation good for resolving this view between parties, in my view, make it bad for formulating nationally applicable public policy because the issues are framed by adversary parties. Let me ask my colleague here a question. Suppose President Clinton directs her EPA to develop a rule to resolve the conflict over 
the scope of the Clean Water Act. And, and her agency goes back in history to the origins of EPA's position on this and reinvents all of the reasons why the scope of the Clean Water Act, which has historically been asserted, is the proper scope of jurisdiction. Are, are you willing to accede to that simply because it appears in a rule? I mean, if, if, if another administration resolves the statutory intent question in favor of a very broad scope, well beyond Scalia's test, would you say, okay, that's good? Well, I think, I think it can avoid the need for case-by-case case determination of the scope of federal authority. I don't think it could, could allow the federal government to regulate beyond uh, the constitutional scope of the Commerce Clause, uh, but it certainly could um, help clarify uh, what sorts of, of waters are bound up with navigable waters, because you have a question. And in that context, you have both a legal question about what is the, scope, the constitutional scope of power, as well as a factual question about whether or not act- activity in a certain area has an effect on uh, something with a federal interest that is of, of a significant magnitude that could justify federal regulation. And I think certainly the factual part of that question is the sort of thing that an agency could do. And there are many potential regulations that I might not like as a policy matter that I think as a constitutional matter would satisfy would would uh, satisfy that test. I should also note um, one should, that, that one should go back and look at a Scalia plurality very closely and look at the words that he uses. Because without saying it uh, explicitly, Scalia makes clear that his opinion is a Chevron step two opinion. It is not a this is the only meaning of the Clean Water Act. It is instead the Corps of Engineers adopted an impermissible construction of the Clean Water Act. So to resolve this case, we have to give a construction of it. But that construction could be trumped by a permissible construction, construction issued by an agency as a result of notice and comment rulemaking. That's the holding of, of Brand X. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's fairly clear that a Clinton administration or an Obama administration or a Paul administration or whatever administration folks want would be able to adopt a rule uh, that is quite broad. Uh, and that certainly uh, covers far more than a case-by-case application of Rapanos is likely to cover. Let me take it, let me uh, exercise the moderator's prerogative and ask a question of the panel. Water, its impoundment and flow, its chemical, physical and biological properties inevitably are affected by land uses. Could one therefore, having enacted the Oberstar bill, have laid the foundation for federal agencies to, on a national basis, regulate land use throughout the United States? Well, I'll take a shot at that. Uh, first of all, it already does. Uh, <clears throat> uh, under the current um, regulations, uh, the, the uh, Corps of Engineers does not simply look at, at the effect on the water. It, it has a multitude of factors that it not only evaluates when it's looking at a 404 permit, uh, but uh, imposes mitigation for, including aesthetics and energy and, uh, and land use uh, and recreation, anything you could think of. It's very broad. And then, of course, under the Overstar Bill, you have this language here that we intend to exercise to the fullest extent of these waters or activities affecting these waters, which means land use. Uh, so this, uh, this bill would not only, uh, I think, offer plenary type, um, you know, convert the commerce power into general police power, uh, with respect to water, but also with respect to land use. But when Congress amended the Clean Water Act in 1987, it added one new goal to try to protect against non-point source pollution. But it didn't really do much of anything to the act to try to accomplish that goal. The Oberstar Bill does nothing to change the definition of point source 
or discharge of dredged or filled material. So the answer to your question is very simple. It's no. If you look at the bodies of the Overcharge Bill, it talks, it basically recites portions of 101G. It talks about the state's primary role in, in regulating water within its boundaries and also managing land use activities within its sovereign boundaries. In this case, it, it, the bill actually does not um, use the term primary. I'm curious whether or not findings and subsequent amendments to the Clean Water Act could, in fact, amend the original intent of the Clean Water Act. Probably not. Findings don't count for a whole lot anyway, um, in my view. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, the Lopez, Morrison, um, Raich line of cases has been inconsistent at best in, in terms of looking at findings and how salient are they and so forth. Um, but um, I think it's not true that uh, merely because the Overstar Bill doesn't recite the primacy that somehow that goes away. I, I, the case law um, actually has given some weight to that particular uh, verbiage in the finding section of the law, particularly where it comes to things um, like enforcement uh, issues and whether an interpretation of the act would very directly contravene state sovereignty or autonomy, but those are so rare. The instances where that actually happens is so rare that I, I don't think it's, it's terribly significant, at least in my experience. Other? Yes, ma'am. It seems to me that, um, Mr. Professor, you've glossed over what I see as a fairly significant expansion of federal jurisdiction in the Clean Water Act, and that is to include, to, to get at um, upland activities. Um, and that is, I think the language, um, Mr. Hopper, you read it, but I think it goes to, um, goes to include activities that may affect. So you go from regulating discharges from a point source to a navigable water, waters of the U.S., to now this kind of vague language to include activities that may affect. I'm just recalling and I'm the general uh, the general thrust of the question is is the Oberstar bill uh, expanding the jurisdiction of the federal government over over waters uh, to an extent we haven't yet discussed it, it doesn't change the trigger for uh, the section 404 permit process which is discharge of dredge or fill material so that would still have to take place for it to be covered by an a 404 permit required. But I should say there, you know, there are lots of activities though that would that would certainly not trigger 404, but that would constitute the addition of a pollutant or the discharge of a pollutant, which is essentially the addition of a pollutant um, to what could be characterized as an impoundment of water. I mean that that is the that is the real uh, you kind of the loaded part of, of 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 the definition is saying that any impoundment. Of water, because it says, you know, it lists all the different types of water. It says, and all impoundments of the impoundments of the foregoing. Now, Bob and I will agree, the Corps of Engineers isn't going to try and regulate bird baths, but can we think of uh, various activities that involve the impoundment of water to some degree that have significantly large ecological effects 
that might they might be worth the EPA's time, but that are not currently regulated by federal law. Sure, we can think of all sorts of things, and um, that are and where that water is uh, modified in, or, or 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 added to in some way, so as there, for there to be a discharge. Um, again, I, th- I think so, because it doesn't have to necessarily be the physical addition of atoms of a substance, right? Heat, for example, uh, uh, can be, can, uh, be the, the uh, uh, trigger for, for regulation. So, I mean, there's ambiguity there, and aggressive administration, I think, could really run with that language. Um, uh, you know, how would a court respond to that? Don't know. I think Overstar could be clearer, frankly, on the point about, What it's really getting at, I think, is that the focus of the regulatory program are economic activities, but it's only a subset of those activities that's actually regulated, and those are the ones that have a discharge from a point source. So uh, your point is fair, that it it could be clearer, I think, in the text and perhaps the legislative history, to the extent that's relevant anymore, of, of the act, of the bill that that what what we're really talking we're not talking about changing the scope of the regulatory program with respect to activities what we're talking about is this, the aggregate effect of the activities we do regulate which are discharges do have a significant effect on interstate commerce that seems to me what they're trying to get at is the overall thrust of Oberstar to eliminate the concept of non-jurisdictional waters that's the attempt that's and that's the goal. I put the question to, to, to those of you who have concerns about this, this aggrandizement of federal authority. Where would you draw the line? I'm, it's a serious question. Take out a map of the Chesapeake Bay and show me where you're going to draw the line. And tell me how you did it. You know, you, you want to stop it at first order trips? Okay, here's a man who's going to step up to the plate. First order trips are out. What does the nutrient removal come from? What's the biggest problem with Chesapeake Bay? Nitrogen and phosphorus, right? Where does the biggest removal come from? First and second order streams. You want to take them out? Fine. You'll never recover the Chesapeake Bay. End of story. Pat is suggesting that... Uh, My second question for you, and asking where do you think that line should be drawn... I don't think it should be drawn. Okay? I don't think it can be drawn. Okay? And I don't think there's anything in the Constitution or the forefathers' papers, or the convention, or anything else that says it has to be drawn. I think this whole business of a limiting principle and endpoint is fiction, pure and simple. If Congress can articulate a rational reason for extending its jurisdiction in order to restore the Chesapeake Bay all the way to where it begins, I think constitutionally it's entitled to do it. Question? Question, yes. Okay. permissible regulation under the Oberstar bill stop at the headwaters of secondary streams or does it go to include people's driveways and drainage dishes in front of their house? 
you want me to keep going or you want to get some other voices? <laughs> All right. How many of natural streams are ditched in the United States? There are data on this. Do you know? Guess? How many? How many, how many natural streams are not ditches? A third. What do you do with them? They out? They're still tributaries. They may be ditches, but they're tributaries. And the core has tried to... Uh, wrestle with this problem of what do you do with ditches for a long time. There's no good answer to it. There's no good answer to it. If it's a purely upland ditch, it goes from point A to point B, and it's not functioning as a tributary, is it a water of the United States? No, and the Corps says it's not. Is it potentially a point source? I don't know. Maybe. Justice Scalia seems to think it is. But, see, I don't, I don't think there's a constitutional answer to questions like yours. It's a good question. It's a very good question. But you know what? I don't I don't see that you can draw some bright line and say all ditches are out or all ditches are in because some ditches are streams by another name and they're still tributaries, even though they stink and they they suck. But they're still tributaries because that's all that's left in some tributary systems. Albert Einstein once said that the job of science is to define things as simply as possible, but no simpler. Listening to this discussion makes me ask, is the sometimes reviled, reviled Kennedy approach talking about sufficient nexus as good as we can get? Yes. Um, as I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that this, two quick points on this. One is the fact that there, the line drawing is difficult doesn't mean that there aren't categories. Right? The, the fact that, we enum, that the Constitution enumerates certain powers presupposes that there are things beyond those powers. Now, do we always know the precise contours of those lines? Of course not. But we know the category of things Congress can't do is not a null set. And so any approach that renders it a null set, we know can't be correct. But we know that what night is and we know what day is, uh, but we have twilight. And when precisely does day turn into night? Well, you know, there may be some scientific definition about the precise level of light, but that's an arbitrary line because someone needed to draw a line. And none of us sitting there watching the sun go down is going to say, aha, now it's night. Well, yes, the sun's below the horizon, but it's still pretty bright out. Is that day? Is that night? Same sort of thing. Line drawing is difficult, but we still know there are these categories. They are separate. The fact that, that when we apply regulatory apparatus to things like wetlands or waters, it gets difficult and it's hard to draw the lines is one of the reasons why it would be better for agencies and Congress to take their constitutional obligations seriously so that courts don't have to try and do it on the fly in a case-by-case context. Kennedy's significant nexus approach is as good as a court is going to be able to do. Because Kennedy knows that there are waters that are beyond the scope of Congress's power, there are waters that are within its power, there are places where they mix and they interact, and if he had an infinite amount of time and an infinite number of clerks, he might, with sufficient amount of background, he might be able to figure out that line. But that line wouldn't reflect the, ju- the, the judgment of a legislative body. So it wouldn't reflect popular will in any way. It'd be much better if Congress and the agency, in trying to delineate jurisdiction, knew that there were certain answers. We can regulate everything, which are not acceptable, and try to focus on, okay, what are those waters that are sufficiently close to commerce that we're regulating commerce? We can regulate those as well, knowing that there are things that may be beyond that and that we may have to use other tools than regulation to deal with, that we might have to use incentives. We might have to use cooperative federalism. We might have to rely on non-regulatory approaches. Well, we do that in lots of other areas. The fact that there is a constitutional limit to using a specific tool to address a specific problem doesn't mean the problem isn't important doesn't mean that we're not serious about addressing it. We recognize that in a national security context. We recognize that in the context of criminal law enforcement. It's about time we recognize that in environmental law as well. This, this whole discussion amazes me that we should be focusing on precisely where do you draw the line in the most extreme case when Rapanos was anything but that. 
It was absolutely clear that Rapanos' wetlands were covered under the existing definitions. He hired a consultant who told him that. He then told him, bury all your papers, you're fired. He went ahead and defied the Corps, and as a result was criminally convicted. His criminal conviction was affirmed. The Supreme Court refused to intervene to overturn his conviction. It was a massive project that was going to have very significant ecological connections. Justice Kennedy himself says the government will have no problem satisfying my significant nexus case test in the case of Rapanos. What Oberstar is trying to do is to overturn what really is an outrageous outcome in a case where we've suddenly taken a giant step back in a case where it wasn't one of those cases involving is this really an extreme interpretation of the act. The question was whether a wetland adjacent to a non-navigable tributary of a navigable water very, very close to the wetland where the Riverside Bayview case led to a unanimous Supreme Court decision affirming federal jurisdiction, whether that was subject to federal regulatory authority. I think the four dissenters got it exactly right, that the Kennedy test is going to cripple the Corps further by requiring all these case-by-case -case analyses. Now, Kennedy did say new regulations would help. Chief Justice Roberts said maybe we would defer to new regulations, although it's hard to understand how he could do that and also join Justice Scalia's opinion, but maybe they'll listen to Jonathan and his view that it's a Chevron step two and maybe Scalia would change his opinion in response to regulations. Nothing that the Oberstar bill does would change the Corps' regulation. If they wanted to somehow greatly expand what they actually require a 404 permit to do, they would have to, to propose new regulations and get those adopted. All the Oberstar bill is trying to do is to reverse the Rapanos decision and the Swank decision and side with the dissenters in both cases. And that was absolutely clear from anyone who attended the July 17th hearing and all the discussion. Any other questions? Well, if not, thank you all very much for attending. And I think the panel has done some excellent presentations. And I'd like to thank them.